Welcome back to Talking Films after a brief hiatus. This week, I'm looking at a timeless classic which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this month based on Stephen King's classic novel and adapted by the visionary director Stanley Kubrick. Jack Nicholson starred in 1980's The Shining. You think maybe he should be taken to a doctor? When do you think maybe he should be taken to a doctor? As soon as possible. As soon as possible. You believe his health might be at stake? Yes. You are concerned about him. And are you concerned about me? Of course I am. Of course you are. Have you ever thought about my responsibilities? Oh, Jake, what are you talking about? Have you ever had a single moment's thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers? Has it ever occurred to you that I have agreed to look after the Overlook Hotel until May the 1st? Does it matter to you at all that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract, in which I have accepted that responsibility? You have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you? Has it ever occurred to you what would happen to my future if I were to fail to live up to my responsibilities? Has it ever occurred to you? Has it? Stay away from me. Why? Yes, welcome back to Talking Films. My name is Ray. You can find me on Twitter at Films Talking or hit up the website talkinggreatestfilms.wordpress.com. Plenty of content coming your way, hopefully within the next few weeks. I am going to dive into The Shining today. I am going to give a mild spoilers alert, not just for the movie, but for the book as well. I'm going to be going about it in a bit of a different format. Uh, on this episode of the Talking Films podcast. Um, I'm not going to dive into conspiracy theories or uh, trying to unpack the code of Kubrick, if there is one. Uh, There are entire feature-length documentaries uh, that you can watch that that dive deep into The Shining. Uh, The most prominent, of course, is Room 237. Uh, there, There are plenty of other conspiracy theories out there that have to do with the making of The Shining, Kubrick's message from The Shining, uh, other things that he kind of planted within the movie. I'm not going to get into those. I'm going to focus more on uh, more on the movie as as a straight movie and also as an adaptation of the book. Uh, full disclosure, this is one of my favorite movies, uh, and the book is one of my top five favorite books I've ever read. Um Despite the fact that they are very, very different, I'm going to dive into all of that as we go along. First, some background to the movie The Shining. Made only $46 million at the box office, which surprised me. When I was looking it up, I was expecting it to be a lot higher uh, on the list of movies from 1980. uh, And I I was anticipating that it would have made more money. Uh, I think there are some reasons for that. I'll get into those in a moment. 
The Shining has an 8.4 rating on IMDb. It's got a 93% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And usually when I go into uh, the movies that I that I do on the Talking Films podcast, I talk about what Peter Travers from Rolling Stone thought about it. He didn't actually review this movie. Um, so I, I have nothing from Peter Travers for, for The Shining. Uh, the movie, as I mentioned, was directed by Stanley Kubrick, who co-wrote it along with Diane Johnson, based on the book by Stephen King. It's a loose adaptation. Uh, somewhat loose, I suppose. Uh, the cinematography in this movie, which I think is incredible, was done by John Alcott. Uh, and the cast includes Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd as Danny, Scatman Crothers as Dick Halloran, Joe Turkle as Lloyd the Bartender, and Barry Nelson as Ullman, the, uh, the operator of the Overlook Hotel. So I mentioned that The Shining only made $46 million at the box office. I'm just going to situate The Shining's release into 1980 for you. So The Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars Episode 5. Empire Strikes Back comes out on May 21st, 1980. Becomes the biggest movie ever with a huge opening weekend. So that's May 21st. May 23rd, The Shining opens on 10 screens in the United States. It did pretty well considering it had a limited release, but it it did pretty modestly throughout the rest of the summer once it was fully released on uh, in the middle of June, I believe it was. Uh, it was also going up against movies like Blues Brothers and Airplane, which came out that summer, and another horror movie, Friday the 13th, which I think a lot of people would argue is potentially the greatest horror movie ever made, uh, or at least the, the first great one, uh, also came out in early May as well. So there's lots of things working against The Shining here. First of all, as I mentioned, Empire Strikes Back, biggest movie ever, comes out two days before The Shining gets its first release, and then Friday the 13th, only weeks before. Um, the Shining isn't a, isn't an action-heavy movie, and and I will talk more about this in terms of you know what why the movie works and why it doesn't. Uh, it's a slow burn movie, which increasingly unsettles us for the first half of the movie and then the second half the tension is kind of fully uh fully realized in the second half of the movie uh as things begin to happen uh and of course the the climactic sequence at the end uh involving the the baseball bat and the axe if you've seen the movie uh you know what i'm talking about if you haven't seen the movie uh, I recommend you go and watch it and then come back and listen to the rest of the podcast because this is where I start getting into uh, some spoiler areas. Uh, in the in the film, when Jack starts to lose it, we're not really sure, and, th- and this is you know what I'm trying to avoid in terms of diving into what Kubrick was trying to do with The Shining, um, but it's, it's somewhat ambiguous when Jack starts to go crazy uh, as to whether it's supernatural forces that are acting on him, or is it just Jack picturing things and just acting out? Um, we know there are supernatural forces at play within the movie, through Danny, through the hotel, but we don't even know that at the until uh, near the end when Wendy is kind of walking through and she sees things happening within the hotel that shouldn't be happening. Um, up until that point, we're not really sure if if the hotel itself is a supernatural being is a supernatural force um, because we're enlightened to Jack's background as an alcoholic 
we're enlightened to um, various things that he's done in his past. Uh, you know, we, we're made aware that this isolation can make people go crazy. So there's lots of reasons why we can think that everything that's happening is just going on in Jack's head and everything he's see everything we're seeing on screen that doesn't look like it should be there. It could just be his kind of projection of him losing it and descending into madness and insanity. The saving grace for the hotel is hundred percent supernatural and making all this stuff happen argument could be that Danny sees things happening in the hotel as well. But we know from before he gets to the hotel that he's got uh, this innate ability to tell, you know, see things that are going to happen ahead of ahead of time before they happen. Uh, and then once he gets to the hotel and meets, meets Dick Halloran, uh, he can communicate with Dick and vice versa uh, without speaking. It's done uh, kind of through psychic abilities called The Shining, uh, which is where the book and the title get the or the movie get the title from, excuse me. Um, it's also never made clear because we never see what happens to Danny in the hotel. So of course that scene when Wendy and Jack are talking in the, in the big boardroom after Jack's had this crazy dream where he's killed Wendy and Danny, um, Danny kind of wanders in, he's very spacey, his sweater is torn, he's got bruises on his neck, he's sucking on his thumb, he's basically regressing, which that in itself is a nod to the book, um, we never find out who or what tore the sweater and bruised his neck. We don't know if it's Jack. We don't know if it's the hotel. Um, it's it's left very ambiguous that way. Jack vehemently denies it, of course, but we know that he's injured Danny in the past. Um, and there, it's, it's left very ambiguous. I don't know if that was necessarily done on purpose. In the book, it's made much more obvious. And, and I'll talk a little bit more about that once we get into talking about Stephen King and talking about the book. Um, very, very unusual for a horror movie. Uh, there's only one real jump scare in the movie. Uh, and, you know, some people could watch the movie and argue that there are a couple of other jump scares just in terms of when... Uh, you know, some of those extended sequences following Danny around the hotel. And then there's just quick cuts to, um, you know, quick cuts to the, the girls, uh, you know, bodies lying bloodied in, in the hallway or bloodied in a room somewhere. Um, I don't necessarily count those as jump scares. They are jump cuts. But the only true jump scare in the movie is when Dick is wandering through the hotel uh, and Jack jumps out from behind one of the pillars with the axe and buries it into his chest. That's the only real jump scare in the movie. Um, in a lot of ways, this The Shining is unlike a lot of other horror movies. That is one obvious one. Every other horror movie I've seen has, you know, at least a handful um, of, of big jump scares, uh, you know, designed to uh, startle and frighten um, the viewer. I'm going to jump right into the segments because there are a few that I'm going to spend a lot of time on. I didn't really spend a lot as much time on the intro here as I normally do, uh, but there are a couple of, of the segments here that I, that I will be spending a little more time on than I usually do, uh, and I'm trying to avoid dragging on as, as long as humanly possible uh, for this one. Uh, so I'll jump right in with best scenes and best shots. Uh, 
I try not to go the obvious route for a lot of these, but with The Shining, it really is the obvious ones that stand out. All of the tracking shots, there's so many tracking shots. You think of the opening credits sequence, which is one long helicopter shot um, of kind of the environment and the, and the, the land uh, in Colorado where this is set. Um, there are so many tracking shots. Again, thinking specifically of the, the shots where Danny is, is biking uh, through the hotel. He's on his tricycle and he's just wheeling around the hallways of the hotel. Uh, those shots are absolutely spectacular, especially with the sound when he goes from you know the hardwood floor onto the carpet and then back to the hardwood floor. Um, when you incorporate the sound into those tracking shots with Danny on the bike, they, it just enhances them even more. Um, there's a very long, slow zoom tracking shot uh, of Jack in his writing space, that big lounge area that he's kind of adopted as his office. Um, and then that aerial shot of the maze when Jack is looking down uh, over the, the scale model of the, of the labyrinth, the, the maze that's in the grounds of the hotel. And then we get that aerial shot that kind of slow zooms down uh, onto uh, Wendy and Danny in the middle of the maze. I don't know how they achieved that shot. I'd be really curious to find out how. I'm kind of a, uh, a, a nerd and a sucker for that kind of stuff. Um, the, the DVD that I own does have a making of documentary, which I haven't gotten around to watching yet. If I was smarter, I would have watched it before doing this podcast. Um but I, I, I'm trying to avoid this podcast being just a making of podcast. But I do plan on watching that at some point. Um, a lot of the Jack and Lloyd dialogue. So when Jack's sitting at the bar and he's talking to Lloyd, this presumably fictitious bartender that he's created in his mind. Um, but again, that's left ambiguous as well. Um, but that, a lot of that dialogue is really well uh, orchestrated and really, really well shot. Uh, Whenever they're talking to each other, Jack is always basically almost looking right into the camera. And Lloyd is, when, when the camera's on Lloyd, he's almost looking just off camera a little bit. Uh, and it's a really neat dynamic that way, the way that, that those exchanges are shot. Um, the bathroom scene with Jack and Grady, it's very brightly lit. It's a very white and colorful uh background which is quite different than kind of the muted colors uh and not not plain there's a lot of stuff in the hotel but um you know it's just very muted uh within the hotel the colors are very kind of one-dimensional or two-dimensional whereas in this bathroom we get i think it's a bright orange going around and there's lots of mirrors lots of lights and it contrasts the scene taking place really well because it's a really dark scene where it's revealed that Grady is the one who killed his family. And it's revealed that he is expecting Jack to now do the same thing. It's a really dark scene, but for that to take place in such a bright and colorful environment with a lot of mirrors going around the wall, it, it, it's, a, it's a great contrast. Uh, and then the Danny and Tony scenes, I think, are really, really good, too. Um, you know, I, I kind of refer to them as the precursor or the predecessor uh, to the famous Gollum-Smeagol exchanges in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, 
I think Danny Lloyd really did an incredible job playing Danny Torrance. Um, it's really weird that he never really acted after that. Um, but again, he was only five or six when they shot The Shining. So um, just an incredible young talent on display in The Shining. For best quotes, again, um, the, the obvious one ad-libbed by Jack Nicholson on set, here's Johnny as he's bursting down, as he's breaking down the bathroom door. Um, that's, you know, the standout one. That's the one I think a lot of people would remember. Uh, most of the best lines do come from Jack in, in The Shining. Uh, when he's talking about Lloyd and he says, I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You were always the best of them. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. You know, it really creates an, another level of ambiguity to this relationship that he has with Lloyd. Because it's obvious that he, Lloyd is a figment. He, he's not a real thing that's there. Whether it's the hotel projecting him or whether it's Jack projecting him there. Either way, uh, that line just gives a great sense of familiarity. Uh, between Jack and insert bartender here. Again, going back to this idea that we know about his uh, his past as an alcoholic. Uh, the whole argument scene as uh, Jack is kind of following Wendy very, very slowly through that office when Wendy has the bat, that whole argument um, and then the rant that, that Jack goes on is, is incredible. Um, you know, and he says, you didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. Um, that's kind of the capper on what has been an extended, I think it's a three or four minute almost monologue that Jack goes on, but it's not a monologue. It's it's more of a rant. Um, and it's, it's just really, really, really well filmed, well shot, um, and well delivered. I think this is one of the better performances in Jack Nicholson's career. Uh, and that it's not a coincidence why he has um, some of the best lines in the movie. Why the movie works. It's, I mentioned it off the top. It's just so unsettling all the way through. And I kept circling back to that word unsettling as I was watching it this time around. Um, because that's what I feel every time I watch it. I just feel unsettled. I know things aren't right. I know things are going to go wrong. And it's just, it leaves me with this feeling of unsettlement. Uh, Shelley Duvall is very unsettling in the movie, just from her appearance alone to, uh, you know, her kind of unraveling as the movie goes on. Um, you know, we, we get the sense early on that nobody in this movie is actually really a stable personality. Um, and watching them all kind of unravel as the movie goes on, including Danny slash Tony, uh, we kind of know from the get-go that Jack is going to be a lunatic and, and lose it. Um, but we're not really sure how far off the deep end Danny and Wendy are going to go. Um, and the performances, again, just really bring that through. Uh, I mentioned the cinematography, which is absolutely incredible. There's a constant stream of camera shots, which are just tracking the action. Uh, and that really contrasts the sudden quick cuts and jump cuts uh, of things that we're not even sure we're properly seeing at first, you know, and that, that first jump cut where Danny, you know, he sees the girls in the hallway and then all of a sudden it cuts to their bloody bodies lying on the floor. We're not even sure if, if that's really what we're seeing 
at first. And after a couple more times, it's like, okay, no, that is, that is a thing that we're supposed to see. And that is unsettling. And the movie does a really good job of contrasting those long, extended, drawn-out tracking shots with quick jump cuts, which kind of... The more that Jack especially loses it, the quicker those... Or the more... Uh, the more common those jump cuts get. Uh, so why the movie doesn't work? It, it is really different from the book. And I do know there are a lot of purists out there who appreciate what the book does and love the book and hate the movie. And there are people who love the movie and hated the book. I'm very much middle of the middle of the fence, straddling the fence here because I love both the book and the movie, as I mentioned. Um, but I, I do understand why people who love the book don't like the movie and why people who love the movie don't like the book. Um, the horror genre just as in general has a very selective audience. I myself, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a horror fan. Despite that, I really enjoy The Shining. And I, I guess I really enjoy different types of horror movies, such as The Shining, such as Alien. Um, you know, it, they're, they're considered very avant-garde and different types of horror movies. Those are the types of horror movies I guess I generally tend to like. Um, and the movie does take a while to get going. And if you haven't seen The Shining before and you're watching it now in 2020... Um, you know, so many people and, and so many movie watchers, uh, we want instant pleasure. We want instant action. This movie definitely does not give you that. It's about 45 minutes into the movie before Jack starts to lose it, um, which is a long time by today's movie standards. Uh, but again, it's all about the payoff. I think it's all about that, that climax at the end and you know, things are going to go wrong and you, you know, you see these characters unwind and un unravel. Uh, the more the movie goes on. The next segment is called Cotton Eye Joe, um, in which I talk about the some of the main actors in the movie and talk about where did they come from, where did they go. So it's just about situating the movie within the timeline of their filmography, the timeline of their career. Uh, in this case, we'll be looking at Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, the two, uh, I think, obvious to say, the main leads of the movie. Jack Nicholson, prior to... Um, The Shining had had done a couple of westerns. He'd done Missouri Breaks with Marlon Brando, which is one of the bigger flops of all time, I think, at least critically. I don't remember what it did at the box office, but uh, I know that critically it was considered a huge flop. Uh, so we did Missouri Breaks and then Going South with Mary Steenburgen and Christopher Lloyd. And he had done The Last Tycoon, which was an F. Scott Fitzgerald adaptation, also starring Robert De Niro. Then he did The Shining. The first thing he did after The Shining was The Postman Always Rings Twice with Jessica Lange. Uh, very, very well-received movie. Uh, so The Shining kind of hit another good streak for Jack, I think, uh, after going through a couple of... A bit of a slump, I think you can say, after uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, for Shelley Duvall, right before she did, she had a supporting role in the Woody Allen uh, classic Annie Hall. Right after The Shining, actually, I, I can't remember if she filmed The Shining first or Popeye first, but Popeye's release date came after The Shining, which is why uh, I lump Popeye into the post-Shining um, part of her career. Uh, it was, As I mentioned, it was the same year, but it was a, a musical comedy uh, 
which starred Robin Williams as the titular role. So uh, kind of a night and day, uh, yin and yang for Shelley Duvall going from The Shining to Popeye. And again, I can't remember which one she did first. But either way, it, it's impressive to do something like The Shining and turn around and, and do something that's as goofy and out there as Popeye. So for the next segment, it's the runway segment. So we talk about, um, you know, someone involved in the movie whose career was just about to take off. I think every episode I've done so far, it's been an actor. Uh, and I think, you know, looking at the movie when it came out in 1980, it would be easy to say that the, the actor who was on the runway and who was about to take off was Danny Lloyd, who played Danny. Um, he never really he never appeared in anything after that. He had one, he has two more credits to his name, one in 1982 uh, and another one in Dr. Sleep, which I'll talk about a little bit uh, in a few minutes. Um, but he never really acted after that. Uh, so for me, I think the clear runway winner, if you, if, you know, if you make this uh, the runway award or person whose career was about to take off, I think it's Stephen King which sounds weird because the movie turned out so much different than the book. And Stephen King has gone on record time and time again, saying that he hates the movie and that he does not think it is a, an accurate adaptation of the book. Uh, but here's why I think this kind of created his, his career takeoff, if you will. Um, in terms of books, all that he had done before, and I'll, I will go into a bit of a list here, but, um, in terms of books, prior to The Shining coming out, he had only written Carrie and Salem's Lot. And then he wrote The Shining, which was published in 1977. In between that and The Shining coming out as a movie in 1980, he started to gain a little bit of relevance. Uh, he wrote a book called Rage. He wrote a book called Night Shift. He wrote The Stand in 1978. Uh, the Stand is one of his classics. Uh, a lot of people would regard that as his magnum opus. Given the fact that it was written so early in his career, I would dispute that, uh, but not vehemently. I would not strongly disagree with that take. Uh, then in 1979, The Long Walk and Dead Zone came out. In 1980, he had written uh, Firestarter, or he published Firestarter, excuse me, and prior, that was all that he had written prior to The Shining being released as a movie in 1980. He'd written drafts of his novel, The Gunslinger, which was then, uh, you know, in, served as the first installment of a seven book series called The Dark Tower series, which I would consider to be his magnum opus. Uh, but The Gunslinger hadn't been published yet. In terms of movie adaptations, the only thing that had been made into a movie prior to 1980 was Carrie in 1976, which starred Sissy Spacek and John Travolta. Um, that had been a big hit, uh, kind of another horror classic movie. Um, but that was the only thing that he had that had gone kind of mainstream in terms of adaptations that he'd really had his name attached to. Then The Shining comes out and things really start to change for uh, Stephen King. I'm not going to list everything he's ever written and all the adaptations that he's been involved in because um, that would we'd be here forever. And you don't you don't want to you didn't come to this podcast to listen to me list off things. But here are some things after 1980 and The Shining comes out as a movie. Here's the rest of the 1980s for Stephen King in terms of 
books. Cujo, The Gunslinger, Different Seasons, which was a collection of short a collection of short stories, excuse me, which included what became the movie Stand By Me, Christine, Pet Cemetery, It in 1986, Misery in 1987, The Tommyknockers also in 1987. Some of his best written work happens after The Shining is released as a movie. Uh, in terms of film adaptations, here's what the 1980s looks like in terms of Stephen King works that become adapted into movies. In 1982, Creepshow. 1983, Cujo, Dead Zone, and Christine. 1984, Children of the Corn and Firestarter. 1985, Cat's Eye and Silver Bullet. In 1986, Maximum Overdrive and the aforementioned Stand By Me. 1987, Creepshow, Running Man. 1989, Pet Cemetery. In terms of TV adaptations, It was released as a miniseries in 1990. So not quite in the 80s, but just missing out a little bit. Um, things really picked up again for King in the 90s as well in terms of movie adaptations and uh, TV adaptations. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the 1980s and 90s uh, as two decades, in those two decades, there was only one year within those two decades where there was no Stephen King novel, short story, novella being turned into a film or uh, TV series, miniseries, what have you. And that's 1988. That's the only year where nothing Stephen King came out. And so with that in mind, I think it's it's easy for me to look at uh, the 1980s as kind of King's first apex, if you will. Uh, and it starts with The Shining in 1980. So that's why I think he's the candidate for the runway. I'm going to switch order here a little bit just while, because I, I am talking about Stephen King and I am talking about his books and, and movie adaptations. I'm going to jump ahead to Hot Take Corner. Uh, this is where I, I say something controversial uh, that a lot of people might disagree with. Uh, but again, this usually is a hill that I'm prepared to die on. Uh, my hot take corner for this week, I've said that I love the movie and I love the book. I personally think that the book is better. And again, I, I will make that disclaimer. I love the movie and I understand that they're both different. Um, in the book, and again, this is where I'm going to get into some spoiler territory. In the book, there's much more focus on the supernatural. All that ambiguity that I've been talking about doesn't exist in the book. It's very, very clear from the get-go, as soon as they get to the hotel, that there are supernatural forces in this building that are acting out on the Torrance family, focusing mainly on Jack as a character. And essentially, in the book, I don't think Jack goes insane. I think in the book... The hotel inhabits his body uh, and kind of forces him to do things. Um, the book dives way more into the background of the Torrance family uh, and why kind of they've been relocated. They jump around uh, geographically a couple of times in, in their past uh, and it kind of resolves or kind of uh, ends up with them being relocated to the Overlook Hotel for the winter as kind of a way to make a little money and, and just get away from everything that's been in their past before. Um, in the book, Jack feels like much more of a real person. Um, and I think th 
This is partly because of Jack Nicholson. Anytime he shows up in a movie, you know that there's like you're you're aware right from the get go something is gonna go wrong with this guy. He's gonna lose it at some point, whether he's crazy already or whether he's gonna go crazy. Chances are you're gonna get crazy Jack at some point. Uh, in the book, he's a much more real person. He's much more, I think, relatable. He's a guy who's had a lot of bad stuff happen to him, which has led him to do bad things. Whereas in the movie, it's just presented as Jack is an alcoholic who's done some bad things. And we don't really get to relate with Jack or sympathize with Jack as much. Um, and I mentioned the, ho the hotel just really turns him evil. Uh, the climax of the book, uh, Jack basically blows up the hotel. There's a big deal made all throughout the book about checking the boiler and making sure that the boiler is at an appropriate temperature so that the hotel doesn't explode. Uh, at the end of the book, the hotel inhabits Jack, uh, and that leads to him blowing up the hotel. Uh, there's also a lot more of Dick Halloran in the book. Uh, it gives some background to his life and his work as well. Uh, and as he makes his way from Florida to Boulder, so kind of leading up to the climax of the movie, uh, as he's making his way from Florida to the hotel, it seems like things are acting against him, which are trying to prevent him from reaching the hotel. Um, in the movie, it's just, oh, there's a snowstorm, and that becomes a central thing, uh, both for Dick and for uh, the, the Torrances as well. Um, but in the book, it's, it's a lot more Stephen King-ish, where there are forces that are acting to try and prevent something from happening. Uh, and if you've, if you've seen the, the miniseries or read the book, 112263, which Stephen King wrote about 10 years ago now, um, whenever Jake tries to, to change something from the past, so it's about an English teacher who goes back in time and tries to change the past, tries to prevent the assassination of JFK. Whenever he tries to actively change something from the past, uh, the past acts against him and tries to prevent that from happening. And if you've read a lot of Stephen King's work, you know that there's a lot of overlap between uh, his stories and the stuff that he's written. And it kind of feels like that. It kind of feels like the hotel is kind of reaching out and it can feel that Dick Halloran is coming to help the Torrances, to help Wendy and um, Wendy and Danny specifically. But it's reaching out and trying to prevent Dick from reaching the hotel. Uh, in the movie, as I mentioned, Dick gets his, his chest caved in by the, the infamous axe uh, in the one jump scare. In the book, he actually survives and the hotel... Uh, even briefly tries to inhabit him as it did Jack after the hotel blows up. Um, Dick plays a, a pretty important role in the early stages of the novel Dr. Sleep, uh, which I mentioned a little while ago. I haven't seen the movie Dr. Sleep yet. Again, if I was smarter and if I was a, a better uh, podcaster, I would have watched it so that I could kind of compare that to, uh, to how they kind of treated the differences between the book and the movie. But I'm really interested to see how they treat the differences between book and film uh, adaptations in, in Dr. Sleep. Um, I mentioned we actually have sympathy for Jack in the book. Uh, and yeah, he does snap and Jack does go crazy. Uh, again, thinking specifically to the flashbacks to the past. Um, he does lose it a couple of times. But, and, and it, by no means am I con saying that he was right in snapping and condoning his actions, but uh, 
we can almost come away from his actions saying that he was almost justified in doing that. Like there are, there are lots of things going on that make us sympathize with him and feel bad for him. And then when we snaps, it's like, ah, we should, he shouldn't have done that. Um, but it, it's, it's more understandable why Jack loses it in the book. And it's understandable why he's kind of the easy target for the hotel to take over because of where he's at, because he's trying to get away and because he's trying to escape things from his past. And then the hotel comes and acts out against him. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, of course he's, he's the easiest target at like, it's, it's a natural thing for us to think. And we do feel sympathy for him because Jack resists it as long as he humanly can. Um, whereas in the movie, Jack is a crazy dude who goes batshit crazy in a supernatural hotel. And we don't really get that sympathy for him. We don't really get this sense of, oh, you shouldn't have done that. It's like, oh, you're a dick. You're a jerk. Like, you're a terrible person. And you're, you've lost it now. And at that point, you know, we... At no point in the movie do we find ourselves rooting for Jack. And I think that's probably the biggest difference between the book and the movie is that in the book, you want to root for Jack. You want him to be successful you want him to be a good character whereas in the movie it's like oh well here's crazy jack played by crazy jack nicholson um and you know right from the get-go it's like things are not going to end well for him um and right from the opening the introduction scene that we get with wendy and danny is you know danny passes out in the bathroom the doctor comes and wendy explains to the doctor like hey this you know jack danny's been injured before uh, he, you know, shuffled around some of Jack's papers and Jack pulled on him. He was drunk, uh, and he pulled on his arm and dislocated his shoulder, you know, in an alcoholic rage, it was a freak accident. So we haven't even seen Jack with his family yet, but we already don't like his relationship with his family. And I think in some ways that's kind of the flaw of the movie is because it doesn't hide the fact that Jack's going to go insane. And again, I think in part that's due to the casting, but I think in part it's just due to how they decided to portray the character um, as a completely non-sympathetic, not even a hero. Like he's at no point within the story does he become the hero. He's the villain the whole time. Whereas in the book, the hotel is the villain and Jack is just the conduit for the physical actions that the hotel takes. So I've, that's a long rant on, on why the book is better and some of the differences. Um, I hope you came away with something from that. Uh, if you haven't read the book, I strongly recommend it. I might have spoiled it for you at this point, um, but it is really, really different from the movie. The movie obviously uh, takes a lot of what the book did and and turns that into a visual and turns that into a physical image for us. Um, but in a lot of ways, it, they, they are really, really different. And a lot of that is because of the man who I'm going to spend a couple minutes talking about here uh, in the next segment. Was this a top three movie for the director, Stanley Kubrick? I would say, hands down, The Shining is number one, my favorite Stanley Kubrick movie. I know a lot of people would dispute that. There's a lot of love for uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. There's a lot of love for Dr. Strangelove. There's a lot of love for uh, Eyes Wide Shut, which I was never particularly fond of. Um, in terms of the, the Kubrick top three, I don't know what the top three would be. And I'm almost ashamed to admit that I've only really seen... Uh, I guess, three of the Kubrick movies, which would be The Shining 2001 uh, and Eyes Wide Shut. And I mentioned I didn't really like Eyes Wide Shut, but because it's the only 
one of the only movies I've seen from Kubrick, I, I'm compelled to put that into the top three. I think 2001 would slot in at number two. Now, I, I've seen most of Full Metal Jacket. Uh, it was on a, a road trip with a basketball team I was playing on a few, a, well, a lot of years ago now. Um, and we, we made it through like the first half or two thirds of the movie. Um, and, you know, I, I am ashamed that I haven't finished it since then. Uh, but I feel like it would edge out, easily edge out Eyes Wide Shut were, were I to sit down and watch it again. Um, Dr. Strangelove and Spartacus are movies that I really think I would enjoy. Again, I feel like Dr. Strangelove is one of those movies that I really need to sit down and watch. Uh, being a big Peter Sellers fan, being a big fan of movies that have uh, an actor playing two characters, and that's kind of a tease as to what uh, the next movie I'll be doing is on, on the Talking Films pod. Uh, but yeah, I think The Shining, number one, so obviously it's, it's in the Kubrick top three. Uh, just a little bit of trivia uh, that, you know, I mentioned that there's a lot of well-documented uh, trivia about The Shining. There's making of documentaries. There's documentaries that dive into the, the conspiracy theories behind it, uh, like the Apollo 11 stuff. I'm not going to dive into that at all. Um, I mentioned Danny Lloyd, the, the actor who played Danny Torrance. He hasn't acted since. Um, he has two credits to his name. He's a science teacher in the Midwest United States. So imagine having Danny Torrance as your science teacher and what a trip that would be. Um, the bathroom door, which Jack uh, chops his way through, uh, props had built him a, a, a normal like prop door that would be easy for him to, to go through easily with the axe. Um, but Kubrick wanted the door to be a little bit of a struggle. He didn't just want it to be a, like one chop clean through. Uh, Jack Nicholson had been a volunteer firefighter uh, in his past prior to, to being an actor. So he tore through that prop door way too easily. Uh, so props had to go back and they had to put filming on hold for uh, a couple of days while props built a, basically a real door for, for Jack to uh, for Jack Nicholson to, to tear his way through. Um, it's well documented that Shelley Duvall suffered from a lot of uh, mental and physical exhaustion on set while filming this movie. Uh, she suffered some physical illnesses and hair loss along with, uh, I, I don't know if terming it PTSD would be uh, proper or, or politically correct at this point, um, but she was basically put through the ringer and put through hell by Kubrick, uh, particularly in those, those last few scenes when she's kind of start, not, she's not losing it, but she's, really failing at coming to grips with what's happening around her. And, you know, she becomes very sobby and weepy and uh, hyperventilates a lot. Um, you know, she, there, there's that famous rant that I was talking about where she, where Jack rants at her for a little bit and she's swinging the bat. Uh, they did that. You know, I, I've seen different numbers, but uh, the, the kind of the average one that I've seen is that they had to, or Kubrick made Shelley Duvall film that scene about 80 times. Um, and looking back at it, uh, both Kubrick and Jack Nicholson both said that Shelley Duvall's work in The Shining is some of the best work they've ever done. So good that she got credit for it, but uh, really put through the ringer on the set. Uh, for the role of Jack, uh, before landing on Jack Nicholson, um, Kubrick considered Robert De Niro as for the role of Jack, decided he wasn't psychotic enough. Then he considered Robin Williams, who was just kind of 
approaching fame at that point. He'd been in Mork and Mindy uh, and a couple of other small projects. But Kubrick said, and probably rightfully so, that Robin Williams was too psychotic for Jack. Uh, the one that stood out to me was Harrison Ford, who he had eyed for the role of Jack. That would be, I think, a really interesting movie and probably more in line with what Stephen King wanted for the role of Jack. Uh, of course, Harrison Ford, you know, this action hero would be able to create a very sympathetic version of Jack, I think, uh, which is more in line with what the book uh, had as well. Uh, Stephen King wanted someone more normal looking than Jack because it would have, it would have improved the dramatic thrust uh, into madness, but uh, I've already mentioned that the the whole idea of Jack Nicholson is is not to make you wonder if he's going to go crazy. It's you know to make you wonder when he's going to go crazy. Now we get to the awards. This has been probably my least favorite segment that I've come up with because uh, I've gotten pretty heated on a couple of the episodes about uh, some of the movies not winning awards, uh, and I know that's that's not why movies are made, but. When you get to something like The Shining and you see that it got no love from the Academy for the Academy Awards, it, it is upsetting. Uh, and The Shining was actually nominated for two Razzies. Uh, Shelley Duvall, if you can believe it, got nominated for a Razzie and Stanley Kubrick. And I mean, I know the Razzies are just out there to, you know, create chatter and, and create publicity, but I really don't understand where the Razzies get off nominating Shelley Duvall for her role. I just talked about Kubrick and Nicholson have praised her endlessly over the last couple of decades and Kubrick, the late stage of his life in terms of how great she was. But with no nominations for The Shining, let's look back at the 1981 Oscars and who won. I'm not, I won't go through all the nominations, uh, but for Best Actor, that was the year De Niro won for Raging Bull. I don't think Nicholson would have been able to upset that one. That's pretty incredible performance. Uh, supporting Actor was Timothy Hutton for Ordinary People. Best Actress was Sissy Spacek for Coal Miner's Daughter. And Supporting Actress was Mary Steenburgen for Melvin and Howard. I think you could have made a case for Shelley Duvall to maybe at least be nominated for one of those categories. I don't know if you'd consider her the lead actress or, the, or a supporting actor. Um, set decoration went to the movie Tess, as did cinematography. I'll never wrap my head around how The Shining didn't get at least a nomination for either of those categories. Um, best director, Robert Redford won for Ordinary People. The nominees were Scorsese for Raging Bull, David Lynch for Elephant Man, Richard Rush for The Stuntman, and Roman Polanski for Tess. Not going to lie, I haven't seen any of those movies other than Raging Bull, so I can't speak to how good they were. But again, it's just hard for me to wrap my head around Kubrick not receiving a nomination. In terms of the score, Best Music, Fame won uh, Best Music at the Oscars that year. Uh, music in, this, in The Shining is something that I hadn't really talked about a lot uh, or thought about a lot until uh, watching it this time around. Uh, the, mood, the music really sets the mood and creates, helps enhance and create that sense of unsettlement, uh, that unsettling feeling that we have. Um, and it, it's, it's bizarre that it didn't get uh, a nomination, uh, but I, I at least understand that. Uh, Altered States, Tess, Elephant Man, and Empire Strikes Back were the other nominees. 
uh, Ordinary People was the winner of Best Picture that year. Uh, so I mentioned I have a few projects lined up. Uh, I have a Top 10 Tuesday coming to the, the website, uh, talkinggreatestfilms.wordpress.com. That'll be coming your way on Tuesday. Uh, I'll be looking or breaking down the top 10 movie trailers from the last 10 years or from the, the 2010s. Uh, I also have the Mission Impossible series, which I'm going to start breaking down within the coming weeks. I'll be looking at each movie one by one in a similar but slightly different format to what I do, generally speaking. Uh, and when I talked about Dr. Strangelove, I talked about how I love when one actor plays two roles in a movie. Uh, I will be looking at another movie that is celebrating a milestone anniversary this year from 1940, so its 80th anniversary. The Charlie Chaplin classic, The Great Dictator, will be coming your way. So thank you for listening. Please stay tuned. However you listen on Spotify or Anchor, Google Podcasts, however you listen, thanks for tuning in. Uh, again, find me on Twitter at Films Talking or the website talkinggreatestfilms.wordpress.com. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. See you again next time.